Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, where each week we get together to run down a little bit of the news with a little added snarkiness as well. I am your Quantum Realm co-host, Mr. Tom Hollingsworth, and joining me, as always, is my out-of-this-world co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, how are you today? Well, it's uh, good to be here. I think all of us in the U.S. are still reeling from the election. Oh, that's right. Um, we are very excited that uh, there's some interesting news going on uh, outside of technology, of course, but this is a show about technology news, and we're going to dive right into some of it today with a little segment that we like to call News or Nah. These are some stories that were interesting, but we don't know if they require a whole lot of discussion. So we're going to pose that to one another and see if it's newsworthy or nasworthy. We're going to start off with some news about Amazon. They have put out a bigger, better GPU instance this week. Uh, the offering is being powered by Intel's Cascade Lake processors and eight of NVIDIA's A100 Tensor Core GPUs. Uh, Amazon is claiming that this is a two and a half times performance increase for deep learning workloads, and that should result in 60% less cost to train a new algorithm when you factor in all the performance and everything like that. Now, don't think that that's going to help you get away cheap because these instances, there's only one available right now, are being priced at $32 per hour. If you want to reduce that price, Amazon will be happy to sell you a yearly subscription to get it down to $20 per hour over the year. Now, Stephen, we've talked a lot uh, over the, uh, the course of the last few months about how cloud companies are ramping up GPUs in order to work on things like these deep learning AI workloads. And since you're our resident AI expert, do you think that this is newsworthy? Well, I'm not sure that the uh, particulars of uh, Amazon's new offering are newsworthy, frankly. Um, this is a lot of uh, more, better, things are faster, that kind of thing. What is, I think, worth mentioning first is that Amazon has been in this business for 10 years, if you can believe it. That's how long it's been since they launched the original GPU instance. And that's really uh, phenomenal. Now, of course, that original GPU instance was more for VDI workloads or something like that. But, you know, this is not a new thing for Amazon. The other thing I think that's noteworthy here is frankly uh, just the fact that these things are incredibly powerful. And the way that they're gonna be used, I think, is as an offload for the training uh, aspect of machine learning. Um, this is not something I think that a company is going to need uh, constantly. And that actually makes me scratch my head a little bit over the pricing, because you mentioned the one-year pricing. There's also a three-year reserved instance pricing. Um, frankly, if you're the kind of company that's going to buy this thing for three years, maybe you're doing it wrong. So I'm, I'm not going to say that this is news. I'm going to say that this just shows how much advancement we've had in deep learning over the past few years. I think you're probably spot on, and I would agree. If you're if you're reserving a three-year instance on Amazon, you're making Jeff Bezos a very happy man, but your accountant probably doesn't like you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Also, if this is your thing, uh, maybe tune in for AI Field Day, which is coming up on uh, November 18 through 20, where we've got a lot more information uh, about the world of AI in, in the enterprise. Um, hey, Tom, uh, the Maze ransomware crew has decided to call it a day. 
the group uh, gained notoriety working for other mal malware creators, more like a business partner, uh, uh, like Moriarty on Sherlock. Um, they issued a statement on their website saying uh, that they were terminating operations after being founded just a, over a year ago. Uh, researchers have a couple of different theories for the message, uh, ranging from law enforcement closing in to, uh, frankly, just uh, moving to a new handle and starting over again. Um, is the is the news that the Maze ransomware crew is closing down? Is that uh, a thing? So I don't think it's necessarily news that Maze is the one that's closing down because they they did make a splash at this whole we're going to work with malware creators as opposed to trying to work against them. Uh, everyone gets a bigger slice of the pie. I think it's more news about the fact that they were able to put out a statement that they were leaving as opposed to seeing your name show up on a police blotter somewhere, which is usually what happens to these big crews. I do agree with the ransomware researchers. I believe it was uh, one of the ones from Sophos that said uh, that they're probably just going to end up closing down their operations through Maze and probably move on, uh, maybe split into two crews and start up again, uh, simply because once you've got that sweet, sweet ransomware money, it's very difficult for you to stop that little faucet. Also, they're keeping their support line open for the next month. So if anyone got infected with their maze ransomware, you know, anytime in the last week, you don't have to worry about things getting shut down. You can still pay your money and probably still not get your data back, but you can at least tell your boss you tried. Speaking of sweet little faucets, I'd like to point out that you said faucet, not faucet, because I'm not sweet. Well, you're also not a ransomware operator, so we, we do have that, thank goodness. Um, Stephen, if you thought you hated waiting for your favorite website to load, think about how NASA feels. This week, NASA was finally able to reestablish communications with my favorite space probe, Voyager 2, after eight months of silence. The reason why is because there is only one satellite dish left on the planet that's capable of communicating with Voyager 2. It happens to be in Australia. And they've been doing hardware maintenance on that sucker for the last eight months since before COVID. Uh, they got it back online and they were able to send out a command 11.6 billion miles to the 43-year-old Voyager space probe. It took 34 hours round trip for Voyager to accept the command, execute, and return a hello. Um, this is a huge win for me personally because Voyager is as old as I am and I love seeing the fact that NASA really can build things that can last a lifetime and still continue to talk to them. Um, Stephen, given the challenges of how hard it is to do networking on Earth, is it news that we can still talk to something that is currently 19 light hours from our planet? Yeah, I'd like to give mad props to the engineers who designed that thing, my goodness. Um, Wow. Yeah, it, it's awesome. And the more I read about Voyager and the more I read about the NASA programs where they're communicating with it, um, not just this, but also, you know, the thruster stuff and, and, you know, it is phenomenally cool. But to me, the news here really is buried. And that is this whole idea that, uh, you know, NASA's got really old stuff out there that needs to be upgraded. I mean, I'm following the news. I, I don't know if you watched the situation in Arecibo with that uh, telescope being down because a cable snapped. Also, we're hearing that the space station is reaching the end of its usable lifetime. I mean, those of us of a certain age who grew up uh, with space exploration, um, I think we think that this is high tech, but this stuff is getting pretty old. I'd say that the news is frankly that uh, NASA had to upgrade this stuff and the, you know, honestly, I'm glad they did. Yeah.
Voyager has exceeded its mission parameters for lifetime. I mean, we we never expected it to last as long as it did. And we're within 10 years of the RTGs running out of power, which effectively makes it a dead probe at that point. Um, the fact that NASA has been able to do this as long as they have has been amazing. Also realize that the original Voyager mission team is still attached to that mission. This has literally been their only job, their entire working careers. So uh, hats off to you folks. And if you want to learn a little bit more about the design of the Voyager space probes and why it's so crazy and, and impressive that they're able to do the things that they did. Go to Netflix and check out a documentary called The Furthest. Um, it has a lot of great detail on how these things were built back in 1974 and 1975. Um, I just wish I could get my refrigerator to be this awesome. Yep. And I'd like to also point out that this is not the Voyager probe from Star Trek The Motion Picture. That one has been already infected by aliens. <laughs> So speaking of high tech, Tom, uh, Honeywell announced this week that they've uh, produced a next generation quantum computer. The system model H1 is a 10 qubit computer that has a new trapped ion technology and is capable to be upgraded throughout its lifetime. This computer is accessible through the cloud with an API and a subscription to the service. Tom, you recently posted a conversation about quantum computing, so I know you're interested in the subject. Is Honeywell's new system uh, news or not? Well, first of all, I think it's crazy that a thermostat and HVAC manufacturer somehow built one of the best quantum computers in the world. Although when you think about how cold these things have to be to operate, uh, it, it's not surprising. We have to cool the uh, the qubit superconducting material to within a few millionths of a degree of absolute zero. So uh, you should totally check out Honeywell for your next cooling system because it seems that they know what they're doing. Uh, 10 qubits is pretty impressive, and according to the press release, those 10 qubits are fully meshed together. Uh, if you uh, check out my conversation video, which we will link above, uh, it has a lot of great uh, data on that. One of the things that we're starting to run into problems with is the more qubits we add to a system, the more noise that we create, which makes it much more difficult to pull out the kind of useful data that we're looking for. And one of the ways that we can increase the precision of a quantum computing system is by adding more qubits for error correction. So I'm wondering if that's what Honeywell is trying to do, especially because they've made it completely upgradable, which means hopefully in the future, they'll be able to add more qubits. Uh, remember that the magic number to do things like uh, cracking encryption with Shor's algorithm is somewhere in the neighborhood of around 48 to 50 qubits. So we're not there yet, but it's still pretty impressive. And I'm sure that if you wanna pay the money to access it, you could do some pretty impressive things with a 10 qubit quantum computer. Yeah, I'm actually really enjoying too this aspect of having these things be on the web. I know IBM did that as well, um, and having them be accessible through API to so that people can learn quantum programming. Um, you know, because frankly, uh, I'm not, still not sure that it really is working, but it um, or that it's really going to be practical. But um, you know, it, if it is, uh, this is this is the, the next wave. So. So moving on, Tom, to the main stories today, um, let's start uh, with, frankly, a major, major story here. Um, we've always wondered um, if what Edward Snowden said about the NSA held water, and at, now we have confirmation. In a previously undisclosed uh, statement to Congress, Juniper Networks, which is a company familiar to our audiences, said that in 2015, the NSA encouraged them to use a weak elliptical curve encryption technology in their routers. Uh, 
The hole in the uh, dual EC protocol was found about a year later and disclosed to the security community. But Juniper's statement to Ron Wyden's staff in 2018 mentioned that a foreign government had found the hole and used it to compromise hardware. The NSA isn't commenting and neither is Juniper. But Tom, um, why are weak keys so bad and how could this have been prevented? Wow, this was a bombshell when I read the news article because, quite frankly, you know, when we remember back in 2013 when Edward Snowden disclosed that the NSA and other government entities were purposefully creating weak encryption systems and backdoors into routers, we're like, oh my God, how could you do that? That's some deep state, enemy of the state type stuff. And just two years later, a major manufacturer implemented a known, well, at the time, not, but later found to be a known weak encryption key. So basically what happened was, is the NSA wanted them to use this dual EC technology because the NSA base had created a way to uh, brute force the keys quickly in order to be able to reverse them. Uh, you know, that's essentially what a backdoor is. And it would have worked, except they weren't the only ones that knew about it. And that's what Juniper was disclosing to Congress, uh, to uh, Senator Ron Wyden's staff is that just three years after this was implemented, a foreign government figured it out, reversed it, and was able to do the exact same thing in reverse. And that's why it's dangerous to include reversible or weak encryption on devices that you sell, because obviously you couldn't do that if you were gonna sell it just to one market. Um, I don't know if you guys remember all the way back in the, uh, the early or the late 90s and early 2000s, but there was a version of Windows 2000 that had weaker encryption uh, that was only available for sale outside of the US because we weren't allowed to export strong encryption at the time, which was anything more than 64 bits. Um, but basically what happened, and uh, nobody will disclose who was the one who reversed it, uh, but the security community's money is on the Chinese right now. Uh, now they have a way to backdoor routers, um, and that's not good. And the fact that we didn't know about it in 2015, we didn't know about it in 2018. The only reason we found out about it is because it was disclosed in a congressional report in July that was referenced in a footnote somewhere, tells you how badly they want to bury the story. But we have to talk about it because if major manufacturers can be encouraged by the US federal government to purposefully weaken security encryption so that they can spy on other nations, we're going to find ourselves getting locked out of a bunch of bidding processes pretty quick. And quite honestly, does that make us any better than the people that we have been railing against for the last few years for doing the exact same thing? Yeah, this is really the challenge, I think, in my opinion, for a lot of these uh, arguments where people are saying, oh, well, we, there should be a master key or there should be some way you know, only the government can have the master key. Well, that's not gonna work. Like you said, there was no indication that this was hackable, but it was hacked. So if we do implement any kind of master key or golden key or something to, to, to let people bypass encryption, it is inevitable. In fact, it is going to instantly happen that other nation states are going to crack into those systems as well. We simply cannot have a backdoor into encryption, um, not for the NSA, not for legit law enforcement. And uh, I'm absolutely on, on the train that says we just need strong, powerful encryption. Yeah, the safest lock is the one that has no keys. And I will back that statement until my dying day. Um, Stephen, on a happier note, NetApp is making storage easier by getting rid of storage. 
the industry stalwart announced some updates to their on platform that make the lives of application developers a little bit easier. They're calling it the spot and it's a suite of services that takes input from developers and automatically provisions and right sizes container clusters for proper storage performance. Uh, the spot is being positioned very similarly to the existing serverless technology that you've no doubt heard about that is being used in the cloud where developers pay for what their applications use instead of buying bigger resource pools and then allocating out of those. Um, Steven, is NetApp really trying to revolutionize storage here by essentially getting rid of it? Well, yeah, I think it's important to face the, the, the key fact here that just like serverless doesn't get away from servers. Storage list doesn't get away from storage. That's not at all what NetApp is trying to say here. And I know that you know that, Tom, but I think that that might not be obvious to people. And uh, judging by the fun that people have had criticizing serverless uh, for years now, ever since the concept was, uh, was announced, um, I think that uh, people are going to criticize this one as well. Um, you know, essentially what they've done here is they've created sort of the next generation um, cloud storage solution that is available as a service in Azure. And uh, frankly, Spot is interesting because it also has a compute aspect as well. So essentially they've uh, created a full serverless plus storageless, um, you know, as a service offering. And honestly, that, that's great. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, my challenge with this product is frankly not anything technical, but um, more in terms of, you know, marketing and positioning. And my question would simply be, is someone going to buy serverless or whatever storageless is, is someone going to buy that from NetApp? Uh, the answer is no. Um, nobody would buy that from NetApp. That's why it's interesting, too, that they're selling this thing. Uh, you know, in Azure. And I think that that, uh, you know, has been a real success story for NetApp. Uh, those of you who don't know, um, there's already a drop down box in Azure where you select NFS uh, as a file services platform for your enterprise applications in Azure. And you're actually buying NetApp as a service, whether you know it or not. This, I think, is the ultimate uh, goal for this. And frankly, we could be looking at a whole new NetApp launching here if it works. But um, I just don't see NetApp as a, um, you know, inherently a credible voice in serverless or storageless, uh, you know, as a service. I see that this is NetApp moving into a new market and hopefully they'll be able to play in that new market. But um, I'm really not sold yet, but I really like the direction. Yeah, this, this is a, an industry stalwart, like we said, kind of trying to keep with the times and the fact that they're branding it as part of their ONTAP platform, what they're hoping, I guess, is that existing ONTAP customers will consider consuming the new service alongside the old one, maybe as a data migration path or something like that, and continuing that kind of, oh man, I hate to say it, but lock-in. Um, you know, I hope it pays off for them. Uh, but yeah, I, I really think that it's not as as much uh, aimed at NetApp customers at all. I think that what we're going to see is is this is a real net new product um, if it if it works. If it doesn't work, well, then it doesn't work. And nobody cares. So uh, moving on to another story here, Tom. Um, if uh, people are running an Oracle WebLogic server, then they're going to want to patch it. Uh, a new CVE has been released with a 9.8 out of 10 rating, and uh, the higher number is not a good one. 
Um, it uh, basically abuses a vulnerability in the company's database software and is said to be low in complexity and doesn't require user interaction, which means that it's easy and can be automated. SANS honeypots have already started seeing automated scans probing for the vulnerability, um, all while Oracle is pushing a patch out to people who are trying to figure out how to install it without creating more chaos. Tom, uh, is this a huge problem? Uh, should we hope that these servers are protected somehow? Yeah, they're web servers running Java facing the internet and it's Oracle. And so, yeah, this is about as bad as it can be. Uh, first of all, Oracle pushed an out-of-band patch, I believe late Monday or early Tuesday, which is odd for them because they don't like pushing software patches. And part of that reason is because every Oracle system on the planet is about as fragile as uh, paper mache that's on fire. Uh, they fall apart at the drop of a hat and nobody likes patching Oracle. Uh, that, that's like a full-time job just to keep it from, from the bottom falling out from underneath you. But when you've got a 9.8 out of 10, that's a get this patched or you lose your job kind of thing. So there are a lot of people who are kind of, you know, like, you know, they've got a very uncomfortable choice. You know, the, the meme of the guy sweating as he's with the two buttons, you know, patch it or break it kind of thing. Um, I, I don't envy anybody who's probably going to be pulling a few all-nighters this week to get these, these systems up and uh, moving. Now, Larry, if you're listening, I know you're a huge fan of the show and we appreciate your patronage. Can I give you a little word of advice? If you want to sell more Oracle Cloud, you need to have something like this implemented on your platform that's automatically patched as soon as your vulnerabilities are found and it doesn't break the underlying infrastructure. If you could do that tomorrow, you would easily be close to taking over Google Cloud for third place. Uh, I'm just saying this, this is a gold mine. So Uncle Larry, take my advice. You could be a contender. <laughs> All right, Steven, are you ready to talk a little bit more about space networking? I am ready to talk a little bit more about space networking. Awesome. Last week, Elon Musk's newest venture, Starlink, announced a beta program to test their space broadband offering. Uh, opening the program up for people to sign up is kind of their next phase now that they're able to actually get it out into the wild and see how well it works. Um, you want to hop on board this space train? Awesome. We're going to need to see your wallet, though, because you're going to have to pony up $499 for the base station equipment in order to be able to receive the Starlink signal. You're going to have to sign up for the service, which is about $99 a month. And a lot of you are probably out there screeching to a halt because it's unproven. Uh, first of all, you do get to have internet access if you can see the sky. That's a huge win for a lot of people who are in the country. You get download speeds, which are somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 100 megabits per second, which is definitely not gigablast fast, but again, country, sky. Uh, the latency is around 20 to 40 milliseconds, which you're not gonna be fragging noobs in Call of Duty when you, with that, but you can probably surf the web pretty easily. Uh, the other thing you have to be aware of, though, is that Starlink still isn't 100% reliable right now because they don't have enough satellites in orbit. So there are possibilities that during the beta program, you may just you may not have any kind of internet connectivity for a few hours while the satellite network is being rearranged. Um, they are working feverishly, though, to get as many satellites in orbit as they can to, to help make this thing a little bit more robust. Um, Stephen, is Elon Musk about to change the way that we look at rural broadband with this whole Starlink project? Well, yeah, I mean, there's just so much going on here. Um, you know, I think that, uh, well, it, it's just a it's just a really cool offering. Uh, full disclosure, I signed up as a potential beta uh, customer. They didn't accept me. 
Uh, and if they had, I couldn't talk about it because the beta was uh, rule number one of Starlink beta was you can't talk about Starlink beta. Um, they didn't. Um, anyway, uh, the, the, the funny thing too is the beta program was officially called the better than nothing program. No kidding. <laughs> um, so it is better than nothing. In fact, it's way better than nothing. I think that uh, so far what we're seeing uh, in terms of some of the reports and numbers and so on that we're seeing from this um, latest round of uh, open beta testing is uh, really encouraging. Um, you know, for comparison, um, what people are getting in the woods in Idaho is better than what I get at my house thanks to uh, networking connectivity giant spectrum communications. So um, they're actually getting, uh, you know, better throughput uh, but not as good latency as uh, cable modems. And that's frankly really, really encouraging. Also, uh, another story that we saw last week was that, um, you know, they're putting this forward to get, um, you know, rural broadband dollars from the federal government. Um, I think they're going to get it. I think they're going to deserve it. And um, I'm pretty excited with what they're doing here with this service. Uh, you're absolutely right that they're going to be getting the rural broadband funding. I mean, that's Elon Musk's bread and butter right now. And let's be fair, I've already had three of my friends who have been moving out to the country call me about whether or not they think Starlink is something they should look into. And when they quoted me what it was going to cost to have a cable modem or DSL run out to their, uh, their location, I told them, at the worst, you can try it for a few months and see if it's worthy. But remember that this isn't Elon's end game. His end game is to have a completely autonomous network for his autonomous Teslas so that he doesn't have to rely on anybody else. And if the way that things are looking with the beta test for Starlink right now is what's gonna look like in maybe two years, with faster speeds and better coverage, I have no doubt in my mind that the latency issues will go down a little bit, but an autonomous vehicle doesn't really need that much latency when it's backhauling data. And I think you're gonna see a lot of people that are gonna to jump to Starlink where, like you said, they're getting better speeds in the middle of nowhere compared to getting crappy speeds in civilization. Yeah, this is, um, to me, this is a real iPhone moment. Uh, remember when Steve Jobs held up the uh, crummy cell phones and said, everyone hates these things, and then introduced the iPhone? Um, Starlink to me is an iPhone moment in telecom. Everyone hates their broadband provider. Uh, their broadband providers are awful. They charge a lot. They have bad service, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on. And um, they're offering, um, you know, they're planning on offering a really, really robust uh, alternative um, that would be available to anyone anywhere. I actually disagree with you in terms of what uh, Elon Musk's end game is here, Tom. My opinion um, is actually uh, formed by some of the space folks that I read. I'm going to give a shout out to Casey Hanmer and um, also the folks at the Liftoff podcast. Um, I believe that Elon Musk's uh, goal with Starlink is um, nothing less than funding his trip to Mars. In other words, uh, they have found a wonderful application for uh, low Earth orbit satellites that they can use to make a huge pile of money. And then they can reinvest that huge pile of money into the spaceport in Boca Chica that's building these uh, you know, spaceships uh, to go to Mars. And I believe that that's what's going on here, that they're planning on using this thing as a cash cow um, to go to Mars. 
Um, but of course, with that said, I think it's also very, very important to recognize that once again, Elon Musk has picked a business that is subsidized by the United States government. I mean, it was important to recognize that, um, you know, that's, that was true of uh, battery electric vehicles. It was true of the uh, batteries themselves and, the, you know, fixed power. Um, solar systems, as well as, you know, broadband, rural broadband. Um, can't argue with the guy's logic. I mean, if the federal government's going to give you a billion dollars, you might as well take it. Yeah, exactly. The only time will tell to see if Elon Musk will be the king of autonomous vehicles, the king of government funding, or possibly the king of Mars. The king of so, Mars, absolutely. Yeah, well, I don't think he's going to stop until he sees the red planet for himself. All right, well, that should just about do it for this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. We want to thank each and every one of you for joining us this week. Remember that if you want to check us out um, on a podcast format, we do have that. If you want to search for Gestalt IT Rundown in your favorite podcast application of choice, you can pull the feed down and listen to us on your run or perhaps your morning drive in your non-autonomous vehicle for the time being. Uh, we will be uh, public publishing our videos at 12.30 Eastern time every Wednesday on YouTube and on Facebook. So if you're uh, on YouTube, uh, you know, subscribe to our channel. If you're on Facebook, leave us a thumbs up and a like. We really appreciate those. Uh, we also uh, would love to see any ideas that you have for stories. If you want to do that, make sure you tweet at Gestalt IT. Um, we're always happy to see some interesting things coming out of the corners of the internet that we don't always get to. Um, but, you know, we will be back next week with more great news coverage. Uh, in the interim, if you want to check out some of the stuff that we've been working on, Stephen, where's the best place to check that out? Well, actually, you know what, given the subject matter of this episode, I'm going to say uh, go over to utilizing-ai.com or follow utilizing underscore AI on Twitter, where you'll find my weekly podcast on enterprise applications for AI technology. I'm pretty proud of it. Um, I think we've been doing a, a good job. I think we've been having a lot of fun there as well in talking about how AI is being used uh, you know, for productive purposes. And really it kind of forms a foundation for this upcoming AI field day that I mentioned. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, if you want to check out some of the stuff that I've been covering, please make sure you head over to gestaltit.com, search for Tom Hollingsworth. A lot of my stories will be popping up. And don't forget that Stephen and I have day jobs at Tech Field Day. And this week is Cloud Field Day 9. Uh, that will be going on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So if you want to tune in at techfieldday.com, there'll be a live streaming video of all the presentations there. And as Stephen mentioned, don't forget that AI Field Day 1 is coming up in just a couple of weeks. Uh, so you're going to want to make sure that you're tuned in and ready to go on that. There's a lot of great presentations there, and you're not going to to want to miss it. But for now, for myself and for Stephen, uh, thank you very much for tuning in to the Gestalt IT Rundown, and we hope that each and every one of you has a super sparkly day.